you may be seated. Let's pray again this time to bring our needs before Heavenly Father. Uh, Father God, we are way down uh, with many needs. Um, maybe first on many of our minds is, is the amount of illness uh, that is going through um, our congregation right now and our community right now. And so we do pray for those who are sick um, and, and for those who are um, suffering with uh, so many different illnesses that are, <laughs> that are rampaging. Uh, through uh, the country, through our through our community, uh, we just pray for their full healing. We pray for their recovery. We pray, Father, for their stamina and strength in the midst of this. We pray, Father, that they would stay focused on Christ in this. We pray that that even in their weakness right now, that they would uh, find the ability to rest in the strength of Jesus. That this would be a time of growth, that this would be a time of reliance upon him. We pray, Father, that all of our challenges that we are going through in our lives, we are um, experiencing difficulties at work, we are experiencing difficulties with our health, we are experiencing difficulties in our relationships, in our marriages, and in our uh, extended families, and um, in our friendships, but Father, in all of those, let us turn our hearts toward Jesus and find our strength in him. And might we grow through these trials to be more holy, to be more Christ-like, to be more righteous, to be more prepared for the day that he calls us home or that he returns to make all things new. We pray, Father, um, we, we pray, Father, for the uh, continuing uh, strife and, and, and fighting in the Ukraine and in Russia, and we pray, Father, um, we know that there has been talks of, of ceasefire for Orthodox celebrations of Christmas, um, we pray that our um, Orthodox uh, brothers and sisters in Christ would nonetheless be encouraged through their celebrations, whether there are ceasefires or not, whether they are in Ukraine or whether they are in Russia or whether they are in places in between, whether they are torn uh, by one side or the other, they're facing losses and feeling pain, but we pray, Father, that they would magnify Christ above all, above all worldly conflicts. That they would shine the gospel and make that the crown jewel of their souls, not a nation, not a border, not a government. We pray for a gospel movement to flourish in both of those lands through the witness of the Orthodox churches, but also through the 
many, many evangelical churches. We pray, Father, that that much would be true here. That you would begin a powerful gospel movement in 2023 through our church and the churches we're connected to in Cleveland and the United States. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning we have uh, Ben Most is going to be preaching his first sermon here at Gateway for us. So we're excited to have him, one of our members, and uh, he's going to be preaching. So from Ephesians 4, hand it over to him. Thank you, sir. Good morning, everyone. My face is too far away. All right, so uh, my passage that was uh, provided to me was Ephesians four seventeen through 24. Um, and normally uh, our messages usually start by reading the passage. Um, that we're going to be diving deeper into, but the context for the passage, I would say, is usually already there for us um, as we normally uh, progress through either an entire book or a portion of a book at a time. So uh, for my passage today, um, as we don't have any of that previous context, I did want to uh, take a second just to provide uh, a bit before we read. Not too much, just a little bit. Um, So the book of Ephesians was written by Paul, as I'm sure many of you know. Um, And we know that at the time that he wrote this book, he was a prisoner in Rome, um, which means it was written um, and given to the uh, church of Ephesus after the time that he spent ministering to the Ephesians. And we know that Paul ministered to the Ephesians, um, not just by context clues gathered from the letter, but from the book of Acts, which records Paul ti- Paul's time spent in Ephesus ministering with them. Um, and Acts gives us a little bit of insight into uh, Ephesus and the culture of that city. Uh, though there were many things uh, and there are many things that we can learn from uh, the readings of Paul's ministry in Ephesus, um, about Ephesus, one thing I think is worth noting as we dive into the passage is that the city was fascinated with magic um, and the occult. And we also know that idol worship was a common practice amongst the Ephesians. Um, So the church and its members had much around them that they could be influenced by. Uh, And Paul keeps this in mind as he's writing. Um, There's multiple times that Paul emphasizes Christ's power and authority over all in this letter. And it's worth noting here as well that unlike some uh, some of Paul's other letters, which were often written with an express purpose in mind, 
or were written due to a trial being faced by the church and its members. This letter was written primarily just to bolster the faith of the Ephesian brothers and sisters. Um, So with that information in mind, um, I have the phrase, click, swipe, and tap, ever drilled into my head from uh, Chris's use of that phrase, but navigate your way to Ephesians 4, 17 through 24, however you would like, um, as we read this passage today. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So we see at the very beginning of this passage that Paul is giving instruction to the church of Ephesus. And the instruction is that those of us who believe should no longer walk as Gentiles do. And the use of the word Gentiles here is referring to those who do not believe. And Paul clarifies this by adding some characteristics to what he means by describing the way that they live their life. He states that Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. And now, the term futility of their minds is not necessarily obvious when read at a first glance. I, when reading without my full capacity about me, would probably interpret it something like non-believer, dumb. Um, And then I would probably say something like, why say many word when few do trick? Um, But futility of the mind does, in a sense, translate to dumb, um, but expounded upon in a more scholarly manner would read something like devoid of truth, devoid of appropriateness, perverse, or depraved in reasoning and understanding. And now if we read over the text quickly as well, it would be pretty easy to miss the crux of the matter in this statement. What Paul is saying is not simply that those who live apart from God are devoid of intellect. All we have to do is look around us to understand that there are plenty of brilliant people that don't believe in the same God that we do. What Paul is saying is that non-believers do not have the ability to live a life with God because they are hardened to the knowledge of God. And he says in verse 18 that they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. 
Now, I'm sure we can all recognize that it's smart to live a life with God. And many of us might have different reasons as to why it would be smart. Some of us may say something like, it's the right way to live, or we were created to live this way, or there's no more fulfilling way to live. And all of those reasons would be right. But Paul has already described why he would consider it smart in the preceding portions of this letter, and his reasoning is exceedingly compelling. See, in chapter 1, Paul articulates the gospel and what it means for us in a way that wonderfully articulates the unimaginably beautiful, immeasurably desirable and altogether magnificent truths of its message. He talks about how God handpicked those of us who are believers before the creation of the world to be presented with every spiritual blessing through Christ. We've been adopted into his family. And this is not due to any outside constraints. This is his will. And Paul makes sure we're aware that God's will for believers is primarily to pour out his grace and goodness upon them. And hear that again, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. It, is, it cannot be stressed enough or emphasized enough that the creator of the world's primary purpose in his relationship with us is to pour out his grace and goodness upon us. Paul goes on to say that this is proved as well through the gospel message in God sending his son to die for our sins and thus providing us the forgiveness of sins and a seal of that promise through the Holy Spirit. And as if that were not enough, we don't have to earn any of this. It's purely God's immeasurable grace and love for his people. Paul's point then is that missing out on a life that gets to experience that form of God, that gets to experience that gospel personally because of a hardness of heart, because of a callousness towards the gospel, is sad. And secondarily, Paul goes on to state that the life that non-believers choose to live is a life marked by selfish pleasure and by Selfish pleasure by any means necessary, over and over again. He states in verse 19 that they have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. As many of us know, all of us were created with an inherent need for God in our lives. But those who reject the knowledge of God have to settle. They have to fill that need with lesser things. And I really like the term Paul uses here when he states that they are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. It's, not, it's just not a phrase that I'm used to hearing, but it perfectly describes what is happening in the life of a non-believer. They latch on to one or many things in this world that provides partial satisfaction, distracts them from their lack of fulfillment, that satiates their thirst, but no matter what it is they pick, it will never be enough. The feelings provided from 
whatever that thing is, will only last a short while. For the Ephesians, we know through the context clues that I brought up earlier, um, it was dabbling in magic or being a part of the occult. It was worshiping idols and other gods. For us, it may not be the same sins, but just like the Ephesians, the culture that we live in is built around sin and idols, whether it be wealth, career status, social status, authority, fame, indulgence in drugs, lust, comfort. Non-believers have to constantly go back for more because no matter how much achievement is attained in any of those things, no matter how much they participate in them, it's never quite enough. So like we read in Proverbs 26.11, they're like dogs who return to their vomit for any bit of fulfillment, pleasure, or distraction they can scrape up. We can recognize then that the dichotomy between the life of a non-believer and the life of a believer is great. I want to take a moment here now to realign us, though, and remember that the, remember the audience of this letter. It's not the non-believers that we just spent time discussing. Though they return to their quote-unquote vomit, non-believers don't know that it's vomit. To them, it's all they, they have. They don't have the gospel and the beautiful blessings that come with it to lean into. But we who are believers do. And Paul's saying this in his letter to believers because he knows that despite them having the gospel message and access to the ability to attain to a life of God and a life with God, they choose to live their lives in the same folly that unbelievers do. And it's because of this that Paul feels the need to urge us to not live as unbelievers do. Now, realistically, to not live as unbelievers do describes the process of sanctification, which is a lifelong pursuit. None of us are perfect, and none of us will go the rest of our lives perfectly avoiding sin. But, we must not use this as an excuse to dip our toes into the world. Yes, sin is enticing. But it doesn't provide us with life-giving, awe-inspiring fulfillment with the depth that we were created to experience, as Paul describes in chapter 1. And with that in mind, Paul goes on, giving us not only further reason, but direction on how to attain to a life of God. Let's read through the rest of the passage. Um, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of, live, of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Upon first reading verses 20 and 21, we can gather at a very simplistic level 
that Paul's saying that we know better than to live as Gentiles do. And though that's right, there are much more to these verses than that. See, we're limited in what we can do by what we know. And I'll say that again because it's kind of going to be a theme. We're limited in what we do by what we know. I'll explain this through a few examples. So, say I was walking around on a college campus for some reason, um, and someone came up to me and said, Hey, Ben, um, we're pretty short-staffed right now, and we need you to fill in for the calculus professor to teach some logarithmic equations. Well, I would have to respectfully decline, um, as I would do a horrid job filling that role. Because, I mean, even though I may have taken uh, calculus in college um, and learned a thing or two about logarithmic equations, I I did pass the class. Um, I probably the semester after I learned it, if I'm being honest, forgot everything about it. Just like we all do. Um, And in the same way, those who have never truly been taught the gospel may want to be believers. They may want to attain to a life of God, but without knowledge of God or the gospel and what he has done for us, they would flounder because they don't have the direction. And in the same way, those who don't ever truly try to learn will be in much the same boat. Now, unfortunately, it's not as simple as just not having the knowledge, though. Uh, And for some reason, my mind stuck to school when I was trying to come up with analogies. So here's another school example to portray this. Um, When I was in high school, I had this one math teacher that I enjoyed quite a bit. Um, Just something about the way that she taught that really suited my learning style better than any other math teacher I had. Um, And because she made it easy for me to grasp through her teaching style, it in turn made it easy for me to apply when I was completing homework or completing tests. So I liked her. But to my surprise, in my discussions that I had with friends, their views were not quite the same as mine. Um, Incongruent, if you will. That was such a Ryan joke. I was like, I think only Ryan's going to laugh at that. Um, Apparently, the way that she taught didn't lend itself to everyone's learning style. So they, like me with other teachers, found it hard to apply the knowledge she provided. And the point I'm trying to get across with this story is that no matter how well a teacher can present a topic... The ability for the learner to grasp the subject is limited by the way that the learner interprets what the teacher presents. And like school teachers, we're also taught much about the knowledge of God and the gospel through teachers. This is perhaps the trickiest way um, that people get led astray in their knowledge as it's not the teacher's doing that causes the misunderstanding but our own. 
In my life, I've found that there are many times that I felt I had a good grasp on what was trying to be taught to me, only later to find that my interpretation of what was meant by that teaching was either wholly or partially incorrect. And yet still is a more grave example of this uh, that we must be vigilant for. I'll use one more example, and yes, it's a school example again, so sorry. Uh, When I was in seventh grade, I had an art class, and we were at the time learning about perspective. And for some reason at that age, I had a pretty solid grasp on perspective um, already, so it was a kind of a breeze for me. And as we were working on our pieces, our teacher was walking around and um, trying to look at all of our pieces to provide some criticism where needed. And when she got to my piece, she looked at it for a bit and then pointed out an area that she deemed incorrect. And I sat and I looked at it for a bit, but from what I could tell, she was wrong. So I responded to her, no, it's not. And she responded with, yes, it is. And I took one more look just to be sure, but I, I knew it wasn't wrong. So I told her again that it was not incorrect. And she then looked at the piece for a bit, probably swallowed some pride, and responded with, oh, yes, and walked on. Now, I mean... My main worry is just regarding this point that the criticism that was provided to students um, who didn't have as much confidence as I did in perspective, she probably was leading them astray in the topic of perspective. And in the same way, there are many teachers out there that are teaching things about God and the gospel that are blatantly incorrect. And perhaps it's not on purpose, like in this example, as I'm sure my teacher wasn't blatantly trying to steer people wrong, um, but because the teacher is trying to teach perhaps on a topic that they're, they either don't fully grasp or they were taught incorrectly on. There are also teachers and teachings out there that are blatantly trying to teach you incorrect interpretations of who God is and what the gospel means, though, as well. So we must be watchful then. Let's each ask ourselves, have I ever truly heard and do I understand who God is and what he has done through the gospel? Are there bits and pieces of knowledge that I have that I think I may have a full grasp on? but I'm believing incorrectly? Have I bought into a teaching of God that doesn't agree with what the Bible says is true? These misunderstandings in our life would be the first and most predominant inhibitors, preventing us from showing the old self the door and putting the new self on, as Paul urges us to do in verses 22 through 24. We'll all have these things that we believe wrongly and unknowingly. But we must examine our beliefs constantly, making sure that they align with what is true. Which is why Paul states at the end of verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. 
our beliefs must agree with the Bible. They must agree with the truth of who God actually is and how he interacts with us. When I was in college, I was part of Kent's crew ministry. And I'm very thankful for that ministry and the things that it taught me. One of the things that Kent's crew did very well was to constantly provide opportunities uh, for us to do ministry. Between booths at events, helping run organizational events, student evangelism, student discipleship, leading Bible studies, there were many opportunities to minister. And in my time there, I in turn fostered a belief that by taking part in ministry opportunities, by doing things for Christ, by taking advantage of the opportunities that he was providing me to be a light for him, that I was placing myself in right standing with God. Every prayer I was able to lead with a student, every person I was able to invite to our crew meeting or Bible study, every ministry opportunity I was able to have, that day felt like a good day between God and me. But this wasn't something that any of my leaders or peers and crew were teaching me. If anything, they would have taught me that what I was believing was an incorrect belief. I would even say if I was trying in my walk with Christ, I would even say that I was trying in my walk with Christ at the time to steer as far away as possible from any selfish motives that could taint the way I was being utilized by God. Yet, as we read in Jeremiah 17, 9, their hearts are corrupt, deceitful above all things, and despicably sick. And I still fostered this incorrect belief anyways. When I graduated, I started working a nine-to-five job and was quickly met with the realization that all those opportunities that were presented to me in crew and much of the time that I had to dedicate to those ministry opportunities weren't there anymore. And I felt like I was letting God down, like I was disappointed, uh, like I was a disappointment to him. And that my relationship with him uh, began to dwindle. Through much prayer, examining my beliefs, seeking truth about who God is and discussion with people in my life, I started to realize that the standing I hold in God's eyes is not dependent on my output. God's love for me is unconditional, which is something that I knew and could recite to you at the time, um, but I didn't truly know it, as proven by the way I believed I could control my standing with God. I was preventing myself from experiencing the depth and richness of his unconditional love because I didn't truly understand that love and I instead replaced it with an incorrect belief. Paul tells us in verse 23 that we are to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Paul brings this up elsewhere in the Bible as well. We see in Colossians 3, 9 through 10, Paul says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, 
which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And probably most recognizably in Romans 12.2, where he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This transformation or renewal of our minds can be defined as thinking in new and right ways while meditating on the Lord. It's the process by which we grow in our beliefs surrounding who God is and how we interact with him and accept the wonderful gifts and blessings he's already provided to us. To put off the incorrect beliefs we hold and understand God and his characteristics to more fullness in more richness, in a new and different light that brings us an overwhelming, unimaginable joy. Understand, though, we're talking about growing in our understanding of who God is. As we read in Isaiah 55, 8, the Lord says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. God, in many ways, is beyond human comprehension. He did not create us with the ability to fully comprehend his characteristics. So how do we go about this transformation of our mind? This correction of our wrongful beliefs and a growth in true knowledge of God? There are many different ways that God can illuminate these to us. But in all instances, it's not by our own striving. True and deep knowledge of God is provided by God himself. Who knows more about God than God knows about God? Um, as we read in 1 Corinthians 2, 11, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. In this light, the first way we can renew and transform our minds is to ask God for this wisdom. We see Paul praise in chapter 1 for the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him for the Ephesians. Without this intervention, our understanding is subject to incorrect beliefs. And therefore, the ability to take part in the things God has for us are murky. They're undesirable to us. Experiencing them at their fullest and most fulfilling are unattainable. The spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him can only be attained through the same power that raised Jesus up from the dead. God's immeasurable and surpassing power. Paul then prays in chapter 3 for strength with power through the spirit in their inner being so they could comprehend God loves, God's love better. And this prayer can be prayed for any and all characteristics of God, not just for greater comprehension of his love. And as we discussed before, God wants to provide this understanding to us. He wants us to experience this transformation of mind. It's his will. Another way God has provided us access to this truth that we can sharpen our beliefs on 
is his word. What better way to ensure our beliefs are true than by constantly going to the source? Are you going to church and listening to the sermons? Are you dedicating time to listen to other sermons? Are you part of a growth group or a Bible study that provides biblical knowledge? Above all of these, are you dedicating time to open God's word, to read it, to allow the spirit to interpret its meaning for you? Praying that God would illuminate the passage's meaning to you. Are you reading it to check off a Christian box in your Christian to-do list? Or are you wrestling with the words, studying them, making room for God to speak to you through them? See, we can fall into this trap, especially those of us who, are believe, who have been believers for an extended period of time, that we've already learned certain aspects about God. And our beliefs are solid in those areas, but I think we are giving ourselves too much credit and not giving God enough credit when we do this. We will never, for example, in all the time that we live here on this earth, be able to learn enough about God's love. To know every facet, to know the overwhelming depth, to know and embrace the warmth and beauty of it can only be done through hearing it reading about it, discussing it over and over again so that through it, God can perpetually reveal new, and understand, new understanding of it to us and can remind us of things that we may have learned before but have since forgotten. This is not only true of God's love once again, but about his holiness, his grace, his mercy, about every characteristic of him. Similar to his word, God can use others in our life to speak truth to us. Are you in a discipleship relationship with someone? Whether that's you being discipled or you discipling someone else. I know that many of us here in this size of church are close with one another and we see each other often. But when we get together, whether at church, at growth groups, on retreats, are we being intentional with our brothers and sisters in our conversations with them? Perhaps even more revealing, when we get together with our uh, brothers and sisters outside of church, related events, are we being intentional in our conversations with them there? Paul discusses this just before our passage in chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, where he says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. 
Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. God did not create us to be sanctified all on our own. In wrapping up, I ask, examine your walk of life. Truly examine it and ask yourself, are there areas in my life where I'm walking as a Gentile? Where my life looks no different than a non-believer? Let us make this a regular routine in our lives. Not just something we ask ourselves every once in a while. And when we find that these areas exist, Let us turn to God in prayer, asking him for the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Pray as well for the strength with power through the spirit in our inner being to comprehend God as the truth is in Jesus. Let us turn to God's word in earnestness, seeking the spirit's intervention that we might be presented with truth and correction to our incorrect beliefs as well as new and deep and rich understanding surrounding the characteristics of God who he is how he interacts with us and what he has done for us and let us not do this alone but lean into our brothers and sisters both for truth from them through God and to be able to provide truth to them through God. Let's pray. Lord, we can be so far from you. We set up barriers between ourselves and you in the ways that we flippantly allow our incorrect beliefs about you. And allow those to determine how we interact with you. We recognize that through them we grow a taste for the things of this world and allow our old self room and strength to overstay its welcome. Lord, we want to know you better. We want to identify these incorrect beliefs and throw them off and attain to a life for you. Firstly, to bring about your glory and to make you known to those around us and to the world. And secondly, in knowing that by it we can experience the goodness of your love, your grace, your joy, and all of your characteristics here on earth. You've provisioned us with truth and you want to guide us along this path of a renewed and transformed mind. We know that it is your will. So we boldly ask, Lord, for the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of you. And we pray for strength with power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead through the Spirit in our inner being to comprehend you as the truth is in Jesus. Grant and bless us by the power of your grace with a desire for your word that we might grow in our understanding in truth and strengthen our relationships with our brothers and sisters, allowing us to be vulnerable with one another that we may be able to speak truth and love. 
so that we might grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Amen. Stand together as we sing one more song.